You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 19. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Happy Thursday, guys. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on The Lively Show. I hope something wonderful happens to you today. Let's get right into the show. So today's episode, we're speaking with Esme Weijun Wang of EsmeWang.com. Esme is a writer, a blogger, a copywriter for small business owners, and a mental illness advocate. She's also a deeply sensitive person who has a lot to share in this episode. We're going to be talking about Esme's journey with mental illness and how she's juggled a challenging career and education alongside it. We're going to be talking about the right and wrong ways to respond to people when they reveal something deeply personal, like a mental illness, a health diagnosis, or a death in the family. We're going to be discussing radical sincerity, since that's something that Esme feels really passionately about. And she's going to give us some tips in order to avoid the how are you doing, I'm fine traps that we can all find ourselves in. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much for being on the show, Esme. Thank you and happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really great to be here. So for those who are new to you, why don't we start a little bit about your background? How did you get to where you are now? So I actually started writing as an undergraduate and I studied writing in graduate school. What college did you go to? I went to Yale and Stanford. Wow. (laughs) And I got my MFA at the University of Michigan. Oh, wait, really? Yeah. Wait, what year? I was from, I went to Michigan too. Oh, really? Um, I was there from 2008 to 2010. Oh my gosh. I graduated 07. <laughs> oh my gosh. So you must have lived in Ann Arbor the whole time. All four years. Oh yeah. my gosh. I Okay. I could ask you about like the Fleetwood Diner and all of those things, <laughs> but I won't. All right. So you you're, got your MFA. Yes. I got my MFA in fiction and I was the whole time I was writing online because actually I'd been writing online since 1999, if you can believe it. Um, I'd been keeping various kinds of online journals and websites and I had a fashion blog for a brief amount of time. And I kept doing that while I was writing my first novel after I graduated from my program. Eventually, I ended up as a writer and editor at a fashion startup, which was modcloth.com. Really? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I was, you know, one of those people who was making those really punny descriptions and coming up with ridiculous names for products. Actually, I interviewed Sarah, or no, Susan, rather, um, a long time ago for the blog on the phone. And she talked about that. She said how important it was because she wasn't a good writer and she needed to get good writing. Definitely. She cares a lot. Susan is amazing. So Susan Coger, she, for people who don't know, she's the chief creative officer of ModCloth and one of the founders Okay, so you were working there. Yeah, so I was working there and I was maintaining my blog at the same time, which kind of took a life of its own. And so I was doing that for about three years. But in 2013, I became really sick. I ended up taking, I would say, probably nine out of those 12 months on disability leave. And this was due to a number of things, but mostly due to psychiatric issues, which we'll probably talk about later. But 
I decided that for a number of reasons, including the fact that the blog was beginning to feel way more fulfilling on a personal level than the work that I was doing at ModCloth, which was wonderful in its way, but was not having the same kind of impact I felt. So I ended up deciding to focus on the blog. I decided to focus on providing products and services full time, and I ended up leaving ModCloth. And so since then, I've been focusing on mental health advocacy, editing, and writing based around my website, EsmeWang.com. And most recently, I've released a book called Light Gets In that's about living well with mental illness. So it's this kind of whole umbrella of writing and talking about living well with mental illness online. Awesome. So you've talked a little bit now around what that nine months was like for you. Um, Do you mind going into what exactly happened? Yeah. So what happened was that I had been living with some kind of mental illness diagnosis or mental health diagnosis since I was probably 11 and then officially diagnosed when I was 15. And from that time up until I was very sick last year, I'd been hospitalized in various psychiatric institutions a number of times, all the while maintaining great grades, by the way. Yeah, Yale, Stanford, Michigan. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not to say that it wasn't tough, but I was having a lot of struggles. I was ultimately diagnosed last year as having a form of schizophrenia called schizoaffective disorder. And so that was a development that was very new. So I was having I was having really long periods of psychosis, which was very scary. What is that? Do you mind? I'm not sure I, I know what that means. Yeah, I am so glad you asked too, because I think people tend to have a strange idea of what psychosis might mean, especially since it's used in common vernacular in a very casual way, like, oh, that X of his or hers was so psychotic or whatnot. And you tend to associate it with people who are screaming and yelling on the street and things like that. In its most basic explanation, psychosis occurs when you're either experiencing hallucinations or delusions, or it could be both. So hallucinations are sensory experiences. It could be auditory or it could be visual that aren't there. So you're actually seeing things with your eyeballs as though they are there. You cannot tell the difference between those things and things that are actually in the real world. Really? Yeah. So that is what a hallucination is. And I I went through a period when I was experiencing a lot of those. And the other side is delusions. Delusions are false beliefs. So this is the kind of situation you hear about when people believe they're Jesus or they are being followed by the CIA, things like that. So those are those kinds of false beliefs that can't be proven otherwise to that person. They're very deeply held beliefs. And then how did you experience them, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, yeah, not at all. So my history with psychosis actually started with more the kind of hallucination type things. They ranged from really more benign things like 
seeing a train coming into the train station and the train wasn't there, like it would disappear after a couple of seconds. Or there would be kind of more, a little more horrifying things. Like I remember I was walking through a parking lot and looked into a car and I saw a corpse in the passenger seat there were like maggots coming out of the eyes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was this, it was really horrible. Yeah, so that lasted for a while and then I kind of shifted more. The interesting thing about psychosis or with these kind of psychotic disorders is it's really hard to predict the the course of how these things will go. So things might be one way for, you know, a number of years or a number of months because this actually started back in 2006 but had developed over the years into various kinds of things. With the delusions, for me, in 2013, the most common one that I was having and that was causing me the most problems was something called Cotard's delusion, which is a delusion in which the person who has it believes that they are dead. And as you might imagine, it is a really horrifying and horrible experience, but it can be really funny also. Is there any funny moments? Because right now, this is all very serious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try to, when I talk about these things, include a little bit of levity just because it can be so serious. One story that I have about the time I had Qatar's delusion was things were awful. And I remember my mom told me, maybe you should go watch a movie. So I had rented Funny People. Do you know this movie? It's It's got like Adam Sandler in it and he's a comedian. And anyway. So I'm watching this Adam Sandler movie while having a psychotic episode because it seems like a good (laughs) idea. And so I'm watching this movie and James Taylor, the the singer-songwriter. Yeah. So James Taylor has a cameo in... I remember that. Yes. Yeah. He has a cameo and he comes on screen. And I remember thinking, man, I can't believe that James Taylor is still alive. He's so old. And I can't believe he's still alive and I'm dead. That just seems really unfair and weird. <laughs> so you didn't even realize that that wasn't the case? No, I, I. it was just like a totally seemingly normal thought that I had. Yeah, but it's it's kind of like a haha, but oh no kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. So, okay, so you're having this psychosis and you said it's been from 2006 onward, but kind of got worse over the years? Yeah. So these kinds of episodes, they come and go. So there would be times in between where I would be, you know, relatively okay. I wouldn't be having these psychotic symptoms. But 2013 was really the time when they were really piling on. There was very little time when I wasn't having an episode. And it was toward the end of 2013 that things got really serious. I was having a lot of other health problems and they were talking about these kinds of very extreme treatments that are usually considered last resort treatments. So that was a definitely a really hard time in my life. I would say that 2013 was probably the hardest year of my life to date. All right. And we're about six months out now from that. So what happened in 2014 for you? I don't know about you, but I really love New Year. I, I just feel like it's a really great it's sort of arbitrary, but it, it gave me a feeling like, okay, maybe I can start over and move past all of this stuff. Because I not only was having 
this psychotic stuff, the psychosis and the psychotic episode and leaving my job to start my own business and everything. But in early 2014, my physical health was also having all of these bizarre challenges where they thought I had encephalitis, they thought I had cancer, I had like an MRI and a neurology consult and a CT scan and all of these things. So I really kind of simultaneously was deciding that I was going to fight really hard to do my best with whatever I had left of my life if it was going to be like that and yeah I think that was mostly it just and then once I learned that I didn't have cancer or encephalitis and that it was just something that I was going to have to live with this kind of physical illness and the psychosis abated also it just went away yeah I mean that's the interesting thing so Actually, the story of how the Qatar's delusion went away is so boring. Like people, people will say, oh, wow, like you had this really intense delusional experience. Was it like you woke up and you had this like amazing moment? It actually happened because I was in the bedroom with my husband and I was singing a song about my dog. We have, we, we, have, we have this dog named Daphne, and I like to make up songs about my dog. Apparently, this is not uncommon, but... No, Mr. Lively has his own songs about Franklin, though he'll never <laughs> sing them for anyone else. He does, too. No, these are private songs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I was singing this song about Daphne, and it was like, I believe in Daphne, little Daphne girl. And during a lot of my delusions, I tend to believe that my family and my friends and things like that are are not real, that they're replacements of some kind, kind of like an invasion of the body snatcher situation. And so Chris turned to me and he said, do you really believe in Daphne? Because sometimes you don't. And I looked at him and I realized I did believe that she was my dog. And I realized that he was my husband and that I was in my house. And it just happened. It wasn't I had barely, I hadn't even noticed that things had gone back to the way they were. Wow, that sounds touching. I think it's a really <laughs> sweet story. Thank you. It may not be a mountaintop experience, but it's, you know, one of those like softly revealed things melt away rather than like you had to add something into your life, something fell out of it or fell away from it. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Recently, you've shared about the fact that there is a right and a wrong way to respond to situations where someone's revealing things like a mental illness. So hopefully I did it right (laughs) as I ask you questions. But what is the right and wrong way to handle that if someone reveals information like that? Well, it was interesting. The reason, so you're referring to a blog post that I put up last week. How it actually came up was that I was ranting and raving about a friend of mine who had put up a Facebook post about a diagnosis that she had received. And I was reading the comments from the people who, you know, ostensibly were her friends or at least were Facebook friends. And some of them I just found incredibly offensive. And I don't necessarily want to repeat them because they were were her private comments. So I was ranting about this to a couple of women whom I consider to be very sensitive, very thoughtful. And they turned to me and they said, you know what? I actually don't know how I would, I don't know what I would say or what would be the right thing to say if someone told me about their 
their diagnosis or their mental health diagnosis. Once I realized that, I ended up asking a bunch of my peers and people who were in similar situations about what would you like people to say to you when you reveal to them that you have some sort of mental health diagnosis or in a lot of cases, multiple health diagnoses. And so there are a lot of things that are not great to say. So if someone is depressed, it's not particularly useful to say, get over it or cheer up or, you know, everybody gets sad sometimes. That's usually not that helpful. The way that I approach it is if someone's revealing something like a psychiatric diagnosis to you, it's a really tough moment for them. At least it always is for me. I think that anytime someone's revealing something really core to their identity in a way, it's it's a good time to be sensitive. You know, like if someone's revealing to you that they're gay or I don't know, you know, something related to identity. Or even someone that's had a miscarriage or has a cancer or a a parent gets ill. It is a really challenging situation. Can you say I'm so sorry? Because that's the thing that comes to my head, but it's equally the thing that I'm like, I don't know if that's the wrong thing to say. I don't know what the mental illness, but I think of that with, um, I recently had a friend's father who just passed and there was all Mm -hmm. these updates and things and it's, it's hard to know what to say. Yeah, I think, so one thing that I, I try to remember and that I try to remind people who are going through this or going through the situation of having things said to them is that people really mean well. Even if they're saying things that seem kind of horrible, they really mean well. And actually, Jess, what you were just saying, the I'm so sorry thing, I actually offer that as like a really baseline good thing to say. It's it seems really simple, but there's something really elegant about, in my opinion, with the I'm so sorry thing. There are a lot of other ways that I end up suggesting about how to respond to this particular kind of situation. There's the element of, you know, I'm really glad you're taking care of yourself. There's trying to be understanding about the choices that the person has made about their own treatment, things like that. But yeah, it is a tough situation on both sides, and it's important to recognize that. Is there any other good things? Because that's great, and it's better than the I'm so sorry. Well, I don't know that that was what I would say was mental illness, but when I think about the miscarriage or the illness situations, I I don't really know what else to say, (laughs) but is there any other tips? So let's go back. What were the first two you shared? One of them was, you're doing a great job, take care of yourself. So another one in particular with someone who's going through illness issues or mental illness issues is there's this question of like offering help because it's tough to know exactly what kind of help to offer. And I know in the past I've had people when I've told them about my diagnoses or I'm telling them because I'm going through a really tough time. I've certainly had people say, you know, if there's anything you need, let me know. And that's really touching. I think that an important thing to recognize when you offer that is that it's okay to offer that more than once. Because at least for me, when people in the past, and I would say like the past five years or 10 years or however long, when people have offered that to me, how I interpret that is 
I care about you. I don't actually interpret it as I would actually like to do something nice for you that would be helpful. And it wasn't until someone offered again, I think this person had offered, I think like three or four times. And I'm not saying to like barrage someone every five minutes, but this person offered again. And it was a point in my illness where things were not going well. And I turned to Chris, my husband, and I said, you know what? This person emailed and asked if we need help. Is there something that we need help with? And in that case, we both were able to come up with things like, yes, there are things we need help with. We would like someone to come and sit with you, you meaning me, during the day. And we would like, you know, someone to pick up your prescriptions, just things like that. So I think that offering offering help, sometimes offering specific help is nice. So if someone's really not doing well, it's often hard to think of things that you actually want. So it might be useful to say, would it be helpful if I just came over and sat with you or brought over some food or just making suggestions because sometimes it's really hard to think for yourself about what you need. I love that. It makes me want to go get prescriptions for someone. (laughs) That's really awesome. I really appreciate that. Now, here's a question. These kinds of responses, would you shift them? Because you've also faced the physical illness piece as well. So if someone's physically ill or perhaps they've gone through the miscarriage or something else along those lines, is it the same types of responses you recommend? So in terms of the physical illness, I think a lot of those also still apply, especially regarding the how can I help kind of things. But in terms of, for example, grief, like you were just saying with the miscarriages or someone else who has died in someone's life, I'm a little more nervous about giving advice about that because I feel like it's a, it's kind of a, a different kind of situation. And i I'm more sensitive to this because I was just speaking to a really close friend who's going through bereavement right now. And this person was talking to me about all of the different kinds of responses they had gotten. And they had very specific thoughts about what was and wasn't appropriate. And it really made me realize that certain kinds of situations, even though they're all under the umbrella of tough situations, it's not like a, a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Did she say anything in particular that could be useful? I think the thing that I learned the most from talking to my friends is that it's really good if you know the person well because then you can tailor your response to that person. So, for example, I think I would really like it if when I was sick or if I was going through something tough and my house was a mess, I would really like it if someone would give me a certificate or something to have like house cleaners come and clean my house for me so that I wouldn't have to deal with it. However, in this conversation, I recognized that this particular person did not want to have strangers in her home during this really tough time. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that. But again, I think it has to do with people's particular personalities and the way and the ways in which they deal with hard things. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's also 
like you said, how well you know the person. Because when my friend's father died, I mean, I was able to just cry with her on the phone because he was close to me as well and a big part of my childhood. So that is almost, I mean, it's a terrible thing to go through, but it is easier to understand how to be with your friend than to be with someone you don't know quite as well. Yeah, like I want to ask you, like with your friend, like didn't you kind of feel like you had an instinctual reaction as to how to better support your friend? I did, but the problem was more, the more difficult parts came in, especially when things were getting dispersed online through Facebook updates. The the whole thing Mm -hmm. was so sad. Um, He was uh, in very good shape and was running the Boston Marathon three weeks he, he passed three weeks before the Boston Marathon and he had qualified and it was a big life goal for him and it was mm. incredible. So when he passed, he didn't die immediately. He kind of basically had somewhat of a heart attack at the most prime part of his life. And they weren't sure if he was at how, how far the damage was for a few days. So they were giving these medical updates online and that kind of thing. And it was actually more like the, what do I say on a Facebook update? Really? You know, like everybody's sharing their support and stuff. And I think it's almost easier to do that when you're not so close to the person. So it's not like a phone call is appropriate because I was doing it that as well. It was just an interesting situation to be going through. And I had never actually had a friend's parent pass. So that was also a new experience for me. So I think I've gone through it now. I'm a little bit more familiar, but I think that actually the internet makes it almost a little harder to handle than it is just to be in person with the person and share. Yeah. I I think what you were just saying was really interesting because so you have like two layers of dealing with this person's grief, your friend's grief. So on one level, you have your friend's internet grief the kind of like Facebook updates. <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> and like how to respond to these status updates. And then you have your person to person, more intimate interaction, you know, dealing with this, your friend's grief. Did you ever feel like you wanted to just opt out of the internet grief part of it? Did you feel like that would have been okay for you? Yeah, I think it kind of seemed to have somewhat boiled down to the people that did not know them quite as well would do more of the internet responses, or at least for myself, felt or perceived or actually just did personally do more of the personal connections because she called me when it when it, the, everything was unfolding. But it was an interesting, heartbreaking thing because it wasn't immediately clear what the outcome would be. It wasn't even clear that he was at all going to die. That wasn't even with the initial prognosis kind of seemed like it was going to. So it was just a, a whole sad situation. It was just very recent. So yeah, it's my recent example of dealing with difficult things and having to connect in a way that I just think I always kind of wonder if I'm so sorry, you know, is an appropriate response. <laughs> I guess that's kind of what it comes down to. Not like we said about mental illness necessarily, but um, in other difficult situations. Yeah, I think that if I'm so sorry tends to be the for me, it tends to be the most okay seeming thing to say to someone who is not really close to you. I feel like when I'm really close to someone, I tend to have a more instinctual reaction in terms of what that person needs. But if it's, you know, like a, like a colleague or like the cousin of a friend or something like that, it's a little tougher to know what's appropriate. Yep. 
And that's exactly where I'm coming from with the question. So I'm glad that you were able to help us with that. And hopefully for anyone else with the mental illness side, they'll also know to offer help and to offer specific types of help. So obviously you've been rather sincere, dare I say radically (laughs) sincere. (laughs) So thank you for that. I know that's actually a big part of what your message is all about is radical sincerity. So how does that translate in real life? Yeah, so radical sincerity for me is kind of this conversation about authenticity and vulnerability, which are both huge conversations in, you know, in the online spheres that we're kind of running in and also in the personal development spectrum. So for me, a lot of it is looking at, okay, how does this actually play out in day-to-day interaction? And the one that I tend to default to most when I'm thinking about it or when I'm trying to explain it to people and it's something that I do all the time, so that's why I know it's a it's a very prevalent thing, is when someone asks you, how are you, and that kind of response, fine, just pops out because it's the default response. And in a way, it's kind of just like a verbal, you know, hello, goodbye type of thing where it ceases to have any meaning. But to me, looking at that, it's actually kind of sad. Someone is asking you, how you are, that's a really big question. And to just let that fine come out all the time, I feel like creates these kind of barriers where we're actually moving in weird private bubbles that are not interacting with other human beings. I think that's really interesting. And we've talked ahead of this episode about how there's been a lot of this that's been shared online about radical sincerity and authenticity, but really it is that in-person, real-life sincerity that I think is really actually the more interesting topic lately. So what do you think? Because I think a lot of times I perceive from the person who's asking it, especially if they're I don't know them well or they're not the most introspective person, <laughs> that they want to hear fine. So I give them the answer because that's what they want to hear. So I'm giving them what they're asking for, essentially. Is that like completely wrong? So I think that fine is such an okay thing to say in so many areas of life because, you know, say you're going to get your coffee at whatever your favorite coffee place is and you're getting ready to pay. You've just made your order and the barista says, oh, how are you? It's not the time to launch into how your morning was and, you know, your deepest, darkest thoughts or like your deepest, happiest thoughts. It's the moment where you probably want to say fine because there's a long line of people behind you and there are other people who want coffee. So there are a lot of moments like that. I think that's kind of an extreme example, but there are a lot of moments like that where I think if you have that kind of awareness of what the other person actually wants from you, that's really important because I know Brene Brown talks about this a lot is the importance of being discerning when you choose to make yourself vulnerable. And so, yeah, I think in lots of instances, just saying fine is the absolute right response. It's just the other times when there could be a way to make a deeper connection that I think fine when it kind of just jumps out of your mouth can cause, you know, a little bit of a barrier. Can you give any examples? Okay, so I would say that if you're going around saying fine when people ask you how you are all the time, 
it's really easy to just let that come out of your mouth when someone close to you, like a friend, you know, they've come over, you're having tea or coffee or whatever, and you're chatting and they say, how are you? And if you've been saying fine 98% of the time, it's really easy to, to just say fine again. And actually a way that I've been trying to work around this in a really simple way is to mix up the way I ask people how they are. So I've been experimenting in the last couple of months with saying, instead of how are you, I've been asking, how's your heart? Because I think having just like that slight different wording allows the cueing of language to operate a little bit differently. What responses have you heard in result? So I think that people are less likely to just say fine. Well, so first of all, the with the wording, I'm asking about their heart in particular. And I also, if this is if this is someone who has never heard this from me before, they kind of pause a little bit more because it's something that they're not accustomed to hearing. And so, you know, I don't necessarily get like someone's life story or anything like that, but I might get like a, a pause and then, you know, things have been, things have been interesting, you know, some ups and downs, something really basic, but that kind of opens up the conversation to go in a different direction, whereas fine kind of just shuts it down. All right. So I'm actually going to do it to you. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. How's your heart? My heart is pretty full. I just had my birthday yesterday and I've been feeling really glad about feeling super loved. And at the same time, I'm dealing with a lot of stuff. But after having my birthday, it's felt really good to have that energy going into the week. That's pretty cool, right? That's a lot more than just fine ever would have told me. Yeah, and it also doesn't have to be super dark either, you know? Like, it doesn't have to be, oh, well, you know, I'm really miserable, and and last night I couldn't sleep at all, and this morning my dog threw up on the rug, and things like that. It's it's just a little bit bit more. Absolutely. It's funny. I think about Mr. Lively coming home when we ask how our days were, and I have different days, especially if I'm working from home alone, as someone who's more extroverted, I can kind of get more down than if I'm around people during the day. So I can kind of get worked up about nothing really when I'm alone more than when I'm around people. And so sometimes I'll come home and I all have had more of like a difficult day because I'm probably like in my head about something overthinking it. And I'll want to say I had a great day or be really positive more than I actually probably experienced the day (laughs) because it's, and it's not like my husband necessarily cares. Obviously I talk about everything with him. So we are very like intense about that kind of stuff. We're not ones to like smooth over things. However, I kind of feel this interesting, not pressure, but just this kind of feeling of like, I want to say I had a great day and be able to say that, that it really was, but maybe sometimes it's not. And it's an interesting thing to think about too. Well, I'm curious. So is this response coming from like when, um, I'm guessing is, is Mr. Lively coming home? Cause he has a day job. Yeah. Yeah. He works um, downtown. So he comes home and then is it the kind of thing where he says, hey, Jazz, how was your day? Is that the kind of thing? 
Yeah, we always do. We always want to hear how our days were. And his are pretty like simple and straightforward. <laughs> he loves his job. He doesn't have a lot of stress there. And it generally is like really good. He's like, I worked on this problem all day. Or maybe this was frustrating, you know, because this problem wasn't easy to fix or I couldn't figure out what was wrong or whatever. But for me, definitely, I've actually been reading Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection recently. And she had this chapter that I resonated with over the weekend about being anxiety aware. So the people that are wholehearted don't necessarily avoid or never feel anxiety, but they are anxiety aware and they find ways to handle anxiety when they face it. So I'm someone who's definitely more of like a type A, like will feel more anxious, which is probably the work that I do is also, I'm not a laid back person. This stuff doesn't come easily for me. I need it as much as, you know, sharing it is important to me. So I can feel anxious or worked up about stuff, like I said, especially if I'm alone all day. I find that my moods are much more regulated if I'm around and connecting with live people versus just being online throughout the day. So anyways, the point is that I sometimes feel like I want to be able to genuinely say the day was great and like, you know, not really go into the negative because sometimes something can come up more frequently than just like one of the days of the week. And I don't think he really wants to hear that every time we ask how our days are. (laughs) Not that it's every day, but does that make sense? Yeah, I'm actually wondering if you're kind of, okay, I was going to use the word policing, but that seems super strict. I'm wondering if you're kind of, trying to modulate how much emphasis you put on different kinds of anxieties that you might express depending on how, you know, quote unquote legitimate they are. Like, I know I can work myself up into a lot of anxiety about various things, especially I'm in a very similar situation in that my my husband works a nine to five job and then he comes home, he's very tired and he'll ask me how my day was. And it's, I kind of do a filtering process where I think, okay, I'm having a lot of anxiety about like five things. I also don't want to just say it was great because that's not true either. So I kind of do a do an interesting modulation where I ask myself, okay, uh, there are things I was anxious about. How many of those things are going to be still bothering me like three hours from now? And how many of those things are things that, you know, we're just going to, does that make sense? Yeah. So I, yeah, I also think that what you, what you dwell on exists, persists. It's not the phrase, but it's like, I don't also want to dwell on that. But if I was to be completely Uh, accurate about how my, you know, feelings were throughout the day, it actually, it's almost like, I don't, I don't even want to feel that amount of anxiety during the day at all. So I wish I didn't have to even share if that was going to be completely accurate. So sometimes I like to kind of, I find myself reflecting going, oh, I was kind of worried about that. I'm not going to bring it up quite as much as I necessarily did. I wish I didn't feel that. And I'm not going to dwell on it. But I'm not hiding things from him. Trust me. (laughs) He hears enough stuff. But I just find it interesting to myself wish it was the way that I would like to answer that question every day. Does that make sense? I wish it was the way I want to answer the question. Right. And then I'm also thinking about the difference between radical sincerity as I envision it and radical honesty. So... So the whole radical sincerity kind of came about because I ended up winning a, a photo shoot from uh, Sarah Darragon, who does Portraits for the People here in San Francisco. And the headline for the blog post she wrote about my winning entry was Esme 
Wei Jun Wang and her radical honesty. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And her post ended up being about how I speak more openly about living with a mental health diagnosis than a lot of other people, especially on the internet. And so I was thinking, oh, this might be a term that I would be interested in. So I Googled radical honesty, and it turns out there is, I believe he's a psychotherapist who his whole thing is this concept of radical honesty. I'm pretty sure he's trademarked it. He's at least written a couple of books with that phrase very prominently in the titles. But his idea of what radical honesty is, is the idea of just being completely honest about everything. So it's that kind of, do I look dumb or ugly in this dress? Yes, you look awful. Um, do you feel like I, I talked too much in that conversation we just had with our friend? Yes, you did. <laughs> what I find with the honesty is that kind honesty is, I think, something that has a positive outcome most, if not all of the time. But you could be honest, like you said, radical honesty could also be cutting, hurtful, and tear someone down. And I don't think that those outcomes are always peaceful and positive. So I think it's an interesting concept. I think honesty has to have kindness kind of paired with it. So you could still be honest, but how you share the fact that someone doesn't look great in the dress does not have to be mean or make them feel worse than, but still also convey the sincerity of that thought. Yeah. And I love how you connect that to outcomes because isn't, I mean, maybe this isn't true, but isn't most of what we're trying to do in life connected to some kind of outcome or like a desired outcome? Absolutely. That's actually half the reason we're struggling in life is because we think (laughs) we can control the outcomes when we can't. All we can do is act according to principles that bring outcomes. We ourselves cannot make ourselves fly. We can't flap our wings like the Greeks and Romans tried to with feathers on our (laughs) arms and think that we're going to like fly just because we want to, right? There's so many other things like gravity and the principles of flight and play that there's no way we could ever just make ourselves do that. But we want that outcome so bad, we might think we didn't want it bad enough. So honesty is a principle. You know, we want to have positive outcomes with our relationships. Honesty, I believe, does have a lot of positive outcomes, but it has to be paired with kindness, I believe, from my own experience at least, to have that really actual positive outcome that you want versus just being completely truthful without regard for their feelings. I totally agree. So you kind of then jumped on the sincerity bandwagon rather than the radical honesty bandwagon, A, because it's not trademarked, and B, because it more accurately reflects what you're going for as well? Yeah, I think also sincerity has a nicer feel to it than honesty for me. What does it mean more specifically? I think sincerity has, I don't know if this is the actual etymological or whatever. Um, I just completely botched that word, but um, the the origin of that word, I'm not exactly sure where it comes from, but I feel the feeling of that word to me is includes a lot of what you just said, that idea of pairing things with kindness, of looking at the outcomes and not just having this very strident approach of honesty, that's the way to go all the time and it should be, you know, completely straightforward. Yeah, that's awesome. So what would you recommend for others who may be facing a similar situation with mental illness or with someone they care about? 
Hmm, I think those two things are really different, actually. So for people who are living with mental illness, and I think that it really can be pretty different depending on whether you've just been diagnosed or if you've had a diagnosis for a long time. I think the really key thing to remember, or if I could just like offer one piece of advice to people, and this is not just about mental illness either, because I think it applies to anyone with any kind of limitation in their lives. So I would want to say to remember that your limitation, whatever they are or whatever, you know, yeah, whatever they are, they don't define you. And they're also not to be ignored. They're, <laughs> that's my main thought. I think there's almost like a, a seesaw response. So let's pretend it doesn't exist. And then there's also, this is my whole identity. That's all I am. And I think it's important to remember like, okay, maybe you have this diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder, et cetera. But you also are this person who really likes pepperoni pizza and enjoys knitting. And you also have like a really big thing for Game of Thrones. So what about the people that have someone they care about that may be recently diagnosed with a mental illness? I think this was actually something that someone mentioned when I was kind of asking around for that piece I wrote about how to respond to people who have just disclosed their diagnosis. Someone said it would mean a lot to me if the person would say, I'm here for you and I'm going to stick around. And I think that's the kind of thing where if you're in the position to be able to say that kind of thing, like don't, you know, I'm not recommending you say this to like your coworker or something <laughs> like that, that you don't know very well. But I think that it's almost the kind of thing that happens when you're in a friendship or a relationship with someone who doesn't say I love you because they feel like you should know they love you. Does that make sense? You know, it is important to a lot of people to actually hear those words. And I think that in the case of people who are living with some sort of illness or mental illness or some kind of limitation that they feel that they can feel really ashamed about or embarrassed about or made to feel stigmatized about just hearing like, I'm going to be there for you. I'm here for you. Like I'm on your team. That can be really helpful. Awesome. Thank you. So now let's get on to our last two questions. What doubts or resistance have you had to face in your career or life? Oh my goodness. Uh, do we have like three more hours? <laughs> <laughs> I know we've, we've shared actually, it seems like a lot of resistances you've had to face in terms of literally like the mental illness and the physical illness. But really, I'd be curious from more of a, like, what are the doubts and resistance you, you face inside of your mind? So this might be a little too specific, but a doubt and resistance that I've been dealing a lot with lately is my literary career. So the issue that's been going on with my first book, which I spent five years writing, and my literary agent is currently sending it around to editors, it's been going around and I've gotten a lot of rejections and the difficulty of just having to wait for someone to pick it up, hopefully, that kind of, it, it just plants this sort of doubt, like, am I actually a good writer? Am I going to have a legacy that I want and that looks like success to me? And, 
you know, I'll also look at the things that I'm achieving in my life that really make me feel good. The feedback that I get from people who read my blog and tell me that it's, you know, in some cases saved them from killing themselves one night, things like that, which are really deeply valuable to me. A lot of times that can get pushed aside by my obsession with getting traditionally published, especially after coming up through the more traditional literary community. How do you overcome it? Are you still working on it? (laughs) I'm definitely still working on it, but I think that's something that really helps is focusing on the good things that I am doing. And truth be told, if my book had gotten picked up as soon as it had gone out to publishers, I wouldn't have gotten to do a lot of the advocacy work that I've been doing in the last year or two. I've been traveling around the city, giving talks at various places like like the Chinatown Mental Health Clinic. And I'm, you know, I'm giving a conference talk in Miami at the at the Bullish Conference, things like that. I wouldn't have focused on that kind of stuff if I had been in a place where I was obsessing over editing my manuscript and with an editor and worrying about like the marketing of going through a big publisher and things like that. So it's important for me to focus on the things that I have been achieving, even if it wasn't exactly how I thought it would look. And it's not over yet. No, and it's not over yet. That's the thing. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. So what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? If you're just starting on this journey, it's really important to recognize that even though you might feel really alone and you might feel like you're the only person in the whole world who's ever gone through whatever you're going through. And as a side note, it is true that you are the only person in the entire world who has gone through exactly the same circumstances that you are going through. However, there are so many people who have gone through so many of the same things that you're, you may be struggling with as you're starting on this journey and you're not alone. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jess. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Esme, for being on the show. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to send Esme a message about how you enjoyed this episode, please go over to Twitter and send her a message at Esme Wang. That's E-S-M-E-W-A-N-G. And if you'd like to send me a message about it, feel free to go over to the comment section, which will be justlively.com slash Esme Wang. And If you've been loving this show and you have not yet left a review on iTunes, please go over and do so. I read every single one. I really appreciate them. They mean a lot to me and they help more people find this show. So if you want to help more people find The Lively Show, please go over and do it. It means a lot to me and will help those people find it in iTunes. Thanks so much and have a great week.